Well, it's only taken us 13 sermons, but we're out of Mark chapter 1. Yeah, all right. Solid. Don't worry. Don't worry at this rate. I'm not great at math, but with uh, 16 chapters, it would take me a while. We're going to speed it up, though. So today's section is actually 12 verses. Uh, Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and I'll read those for us now. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never, never saw anything like this. Let's pray. Father God, let us this morning also see something that we have rarely seen. And that is, Lord God, that you would rend heaven again and pour your spirit out on us, that we would feel a deep and abiding conviction for our sins, that we would cry out to you, that we would come to see ourselves, Lord God, not as we see ourselves in the mirror, but as you see us. We pray, Lord, that you would fill our lips with cries of mercy, that you would turn our hearts to your Son, that we would rejoice in you as our loving and uh, Father who provides for us, who guides us, who is drawn near to us through Jesus Christ. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. And we pray, Lord God, that both would meet in our hearts now as sinners and sufferers, and that you would heal us and that you would set us aright. Amen. Now, this passage mirrors the exorcism in Capernaum that began the ministry of Jesus. Both events include miracles. Both events occur in Capernaum. Jesus is interrupted while teaching to a crowd. The scribes are mentioned in both scenes. Jesus' authority features prominently, and both crowds respond with amazement while declaring the newness of Jesus' teaching. These scenes show the unified proclamation of preaching and miracle. They both work in tandem. This is what Jesus has been looking for. He, he, he wants to go out and preach, and he knows because of what he's saying, the boldness of it, he's going to have to perform miracles. But the problem so far is everybody wants him just to perform the miracles. Nobody is as much as interested in what he has to say. The scenes show the unified proclamation of preaching and miracle. They both work in tandem. Jesus' words are validated by his actions, He is not a man that merely sits around and thinks high and lofty and glorious and holy thoughts. (laughs) He doesn't just speak them. 
He backs up everything he says by what he does. And may, may we all learn to do the same thing. May what we say and what we do work in tandem and, and be for the glory of the kingdom. Now, I'm just going to make one note. Um, this is, as Paul says, you know, this is of me and not the Lord. Uh, and no commentator mentioned this. But, but he's returned to Capernaum after some days. And I think it's because, I, I, would, I interject that it's because he had to make sure, he had to, to let everyone know he's not a leper now. So he had touched the leper, and he was sent out into the wilderness, right? He, he was away from the crowds. And what happens when you touch a leper? Well, every other person who touches a leper becomes a leper. And so you've, you have to separate yourself for a period of time in order to then enter in where civilized people live. So now they just offhandedly, Mark mentions, it's been some time. But given the point of the last section, I think that's why. He had to act, right? Here he is, the son of God. He has enough um, cleanliness that it rubs off on everybody else, and yet he still fulfills the law and demonstrates the fact that he's not a leper now. Again, that's just my interjection, but I think it fits. I think it fits. But overall, what we have here is the movement of Jesus in the early phase of his ministry seems to alternate between the wilderness and the city. He goes into the wilderness, he goes into the city. Then he's, he, he's driven out to a desolate place, and then he goes around from town to town, and then he's sent by the leper because of the leper out into the wilderness, and now he's back in the town. So he goes into the wilderness. And what everyone who's been here now, what does the wilderness represent? Why does he keep going there? Why doesn't he just stay on task and stay in the city? Well, it's because the wilderness is where he goes and where he is dependent upon the Father, where he, he, he eats and drinks the Father's will, he prays to the Father, he gets revived because uh, he's weary, right? Healing people is tiring business. <laughs> and he, he's not just all work. He's not just all mission. He has to go out and have a quiet Sabbath, and he does. So that's why he's oscillating between these two. He goes out and he rests, and then he goes back to work. He goes out to rests, and he goes back to work. Amazing. That's what our weeks look like. We go out and work, and then we come, and we, and we come into the wilderness here. That's how we should view it, where all of our other comforts, all of our other food, everything else is put aside, and what we realize is what we need is, G is Jesus and God with us. That's what we need to feast on. That's what we need to be restored by. So you see this almost like Sabbath week pattern here in Jesus' ministry. So what we have here is, again, the notoriety of Jesus is getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. It's, it's getting very difficult for him to travel around. Soon the crowds are gathered again in Capernaum, but this time the crowds came not merely to be healed by bod uh, of bodily illnesses or afflictions, but to actually hear the word of God. These people are really listening to him. And, and what enters into the story that Mark is telling now is, is this character called the crowd. The crowd becomes a character. It's this big mass of people that are there to see and hear. Um, it doesn't really say they're faithful. It doesn't really say they're not there, but they're always in the way. <laughs> right? This is what every story now you kind of have this group where the, the people who really want to get to him can't get to him because of the crowds. Uh, now this, there's, it was hard to move on to all these other verses because there's a lot to be said here. Right? I've been to churches where you can't get anywhere near the pastor because the crowds are so big. Right? Fame and public um, appraisal and, and all these huge crowds. Oh, look at the size of that church. Look at all those people. Well, maybe they're just the crowd getting in the way. 
right? Just because there's a crowd doesn't mean it's good. In respect to understanding and faith, crowds generally, and in the story of Mark, demonstrate passivity, and given their hurried reduction after Jesus' teaching on suffering, they are proved to be fickle. What's funny is it's never the same crowd. It's sort of like the, 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 the circus comes to town, and everybody goes out to see the circus called Jesus. And, and later on, you'll, there's this point where he says some things about suffering. He begins to say things about eating his flesh and, and drinking his blood. And what happens? A whole bunch of people that have been following the circus around are like, okay, you've gotten a little weird now, and we're going to move on. So the, the crowd is not a good character. But the crowd is often what you find in churches. There's always a lot of people there. They're passive. You don't really know what, right? In, in, in any given church, there's always a crowd. <laughs> they're, not, they're not on the outside. They're on the inside, but they're not exactly active. They're not exactly busy. They're not exactly loud. They're just sort of there. And, and, and what Jesus wants to do is to deal with the crowd. He doesn't want to just deal with individuals. He's, he's bringing individuals into a people, and he wants that people to look and act a certain way not just be a faceless crowd that's just sort of spectators. Uh, so we've got the crowd, we've got Jesus, and then we have, it says, his home, it says in the ESV. I don't know if that's the best translation. Uh, it is where he's living, but I think it gives it the wrong impression because he says later he doesn't have a home. Now, whose home is this? It's most likely Peter's. Going back to uh, earlier in chapter 1, right? they go immediately from the synagogue to Peter's house. Peter's mother-in-law is there. And, and that is most likely where he, he's starting a new family. He hasn't uh, yet disavowed his current physical family. He does that later in the book of Mark. But what you see right now is that he calls this his home. Where his disciples are, where his followers are, where he's doing his ministry is now his home. He's creating a new home, a new body, a new group of people. Houses or private settings, by contrast to the crowds, provide settings for special revelation and instruction. Most of the the one-on-one teaching that he does happens in homes. This is why he likes to get invited over for dinner, not only because he's hungry, (laughs) but because that's where you can really have some one-on-one conversation. He likes to get away from the crowds. All right, so I'm going to now discuss... Right, This is just me unpacking all these verses. There's a lot of verses, so I'm just going to work through them here and explain them. Many were gathered together so that there was uh, no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Okay, and when they couldn't get near, what do they do? They rip a hole in the roof. More than any other expression in early Christianity, the word, that phrase the word, defines the essence of Jesus' ministry, especially in Mark, who seldom records the content of Jesus' messages, it may mistakenly be assumed that the amazement of the crowds is owing to his spellbinding miracles and wonders. But we, we learned earlier in Kavanaugh, it's not. He, he was preaching there, and they were amazed by his authority and his teaching. And, and we know from back in verse 14 and 15, chapter 1, what is it? The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe. That is his message. So essential, on the contrary, is the proclamation of the gospel to Jesus' purpose that Mark can include his entire ministry in the phrase, he preached the word to them. That's how central it is. He's not preaching this complicated system of doctrine. He's not going back and and preaching through all the books of the Old Testament, teaching them all about what it really means about the Messiah. His message is simply, the kingdom is here. Repent and believe it. And now what enters into into the story... 
right? We have the crowd, we have the home, right? It's not his home. <laughs> we have Jesus, and then come these four guys carrying a burden, and they can't get to him. They can't get to him. And so in these days, they have this, the houses are flat, and, and much like this here. So imagine beams going back and forth, and on top of that is kind of a thatch, and then on top of that is a mud that is, is, is rolled out and made solid and flat because these houses are very stuffy. So it was more like a deck on top of everyone's house. That's why you had to have a rail around it in the, in the Old Testament law. Because when, when things get stuffy, when it's crowded, there's a set of stairs that go up the side of the house. Everybody goes up on top of the roof because, again, this is the Middle East. It's hot. So you get up there, you get a little fresh air. You get away from the, the crowds. So these guys are like, well, we can't get in the house, so let's go on the roof and rip the roof off. Right? So God the Father is tearing heaven open to get down to Jesus. And now these guys are tearing a hole in a roof to get down to Jesus. And what this sets up is typologically what, the, what believers look like. True believers look like people who are ready to rip holes in other people's roofs just to get at Jesus. Think about that for a moment. And the God that they are trying to get to is just as eager to rip a hole in heaven in order to get down to them. So, going back for a moment here, Jesus is preaching in Capernaum and he's interrupted by a, by a demoniac. Then he goes out to pray and he's interrupted by Peter. Then he's out on his mission going from town to town and now he can't go to town to town because he's interrupted by a leper. And, and in that story, actually, it's hard to tell when it's translated, but he's getting frustrated. <laughs> Jesus wants to just go around and preach. He is, he is getting very frustrated. And so setting it up here, what is he going to do to these guys ripping holes in Peter's ceiling? What is he going to do? Right? Once I understood how frustrated he was in the last story, I was like, man, there is a lot of tension here for the reader. Because the reader in the original language gets the tension. It, the, the, it won't stop, right? Mom is trying to get things done, and the kids will not leave her alone. You're trying to get things done at work, and the boss will not leave you alone. And eventually what happens? You get calmer? <laughs> no. And so here Jesus is, and all of a sudden all this dust falls down on people down in the third row, and, and, and okay, now you've gone big. I'm staying here at, this, at Peter's house, and you just ripped a giant hole in the ceiling. So how is he going to react? How he reacts tells you not only a lot about him, but about the people he's dealing with. Because he's not as frustrated now as he was with the leper. He doesn't command and yell at them like he does the demoniac. He doesn't contradict them, right? Like, why are you doing this? Like he does to Peter. Peter says, hey, why don't we go back here? He says, no, no, I'm going to go this way. So these guys rip a hole and he's like, hey, what are you doing? I'm trying to preach here. This is the thing that I've come to do. He recognizes in these folks a kindred spirit. He recognizes in them faith. In fact, he goes so far as to say, son, your sins are forgiven. And that is a term that, that isn't like, oh, hey, my son, like my son, physical son. It's a term of endearment. Everybody else is probably... Like, what in the world is going on? And what I love here is that Jesus is like, yes, yes, these guys get it. 
Finally, somebody is interrupting me here who gets how this works. He's probably even a little tickled that they tore a hole in the roof. Right? We're going to see here in this story the swashbuckling Jesus that, that you don't typically see. This is the red butler Jesus. He's like, those dudes just ripped a hole in his ceiling. Come on in, man. Come on down. That is awesome. I heal you. I forgive you. We're good. He's not at all frustrated. He see right? Because <laughs> C.S. Lewis talks about this. The most serious, right? You can still do the most serious things in the, in the world. Loving your wife is serious business. It's serious life and death business. Raising your children is serious life and death business. And, and, and there is so much mirth and joy in it. Jesus recognizes these kindred spirits. Of course you ripped a hole in the roof. That's totally what I would have done. <laughs> in fact, it's what my dad did. He ripped a giant hole in heaven to come down to see me. There's a couple of interesting things to point out here. Is that he says, because of their faith. So there's a moment where you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm going to forgive your sins because he sees their faith and forgives his sins. And there's a moment where you're like, okay, whoa, whoa. Does the guy actually have any faith? Or are you just doing it so it's like if four of us got together and had enough faith, we make up for the fifth guy? Is that the idea? No, but he, he's recognizing their faith. They're doing this as a group. Because later when he says your sins are forgiven, it's very personal. He knows in the dark of night exactly what this guy did. He knows in the guy's heart, he, he's demonstrating in this, he, the man, Jesus, knows hearts. So when he says your sins, it's almost like you can see, like if you could see in his mind the list of them. I know exactly what you did. It's not this general forgiveness, it's specific. He recognizes the group's faith, he recognizes the faith of the, of the paralytic, and he, he does um, something that everyone, now this is where the turn of the story comes, right? Let the guy walk. We're ripping a hole in the roof so you can help the dude walk. And then Jesus says, I forgive your sins. And everybody goes, what? what? We didn't come here, right? Or we assume these guys came here not to get their sins forgiven, but to get the guy to walk. The scribes at this point, brushing the dust off, because now there's this giant hole. I'm like, what did that guy just say? This is the turn of the story now. This is, and if you, it's a real sudden full stop. What direction is this going in? Well, it was very common. It was widely assumed by everybody at the time that physical afflictions and God's forgiveness went hand, right? These are two things that go together. Physical afflictions are, is the result of sins. And so nobody says, hey, why are you forgiving his sins? He's a cripple. In their world, it makes all the sense in the world. The person who, right, the, the, <laughs> the scribes are sitting there in the front row, hating on Jesus in their hearts, and they don't think they need forgiveness. They think the dude who can't walk needs forgiveness. This is incorrect. God does, in fact, afflict people because they are barbarous and horrible, right? Uh, the, the list of things that were wrong with Hitler are long and, and hilarious, but not everyone who has syphilis necessarily is Hitler, 
right? We all understand the logic of this, but it's very easy for religious people to have, right? The homeless guy who doesn't have any teeth, who doesn't look like he's had a shower in a couple of weeks, clearly needs his sins forgiven, whereas I'm sitting here in church, and I don't. Well, I did, but we took care of that in the very beginning of the service, so I'm good now for another week. Solid. <laughs> right? Maybe I'll keep a list, maybe I won't. But I'm, I'm here, I'm clean, I'm good. But that, look at that guy. Look at all the sins that guy probably has. They, they, there's a connection here. And the Old Testament makes a connection here. And just because this is true that it can occur does not mean every time that is what is going on. Right? We don't have, like, the church is not in a hospital. Right? We wouldn't set up shop there and be like, okay, sinners and sick people, those are, two, those are the same thing. In some cases, yes. In many cases, no. But just think about this for a moment. Psalm 41, verse 3 through 4. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. David is saying, heal me because I've sinned. Psalm 103, 2 through 3. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. Now, messianically, we get that he's going to have, he's going to give sight to the blind, he's going to help paralytics walk, he's going to take care of the sins and the idols. We understand the Messiah will, in fact, do these things. And and part of why God provided us with the book of Job is because throughout that whole entire book, you see Job's counselors are like, man, God hates you. I don't know what you did, Job, but it was bad. Because look at you scraping your sores with a, a pot shard sitting in ashes. All your kids are dead. Right? That, 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 you're supposed to see a connection between sin and death, between illness and the fall. You're supposed to see it. But that does not mean like, oh, look at that guy. Right? The worst sinners are the sickest people. That was what Job's counselors thought. And that is foolishness. I don't think many of us do that now. But it's, it's, it's very important. It, it is, in fact, the context of this story. Now, who are these scribes now? Now, here's these other characters. They were there apparently all along. Well, the, what happens is, is it happened to John too. He starts preaching. He starts getting big enough crowds. What they do is they send out some PhDs from the local seminary to check into the guy's preaching and make sure he's not a kook, right? Frankly, if word got out, it's possible our own presbytery could send somebody down here just to listen to me to make sure that I'm not getting... I mean, this is, in fact, a principle that still works. Doug Wilson... Uh, 10 years ago, had to actually sit down and, the, and our presbytery had to actually ask him a bunch of questions and he had to go through the entire ordination process again just because he was saying some things that were causing such a stir. So this isn't unheard of, but that's why these scribes are here. They're here to figure out who this Jesus guy is and is it from God or is it of just this guy? Is it of Satan? So that's why they're there. They're there to check on him. They're not local guys. They've come right from the local seminary. They've, they've come down from Jerusalem where the scribes are, where the schools are. These guys are ordained. These guys are well-tested. Their turbans are on exactly the way they should be, and they haven't come within 500 miles of a leper. And they're holy, very holy. And they're sitting down in the front row listening very carefully to what Jesus is saying. And what is fascinating is there, there's, we, we should fault them, and we are going to fault them plenty. But at, at the start, these guys take their job seriously. Right? When I'm questioned, 
by somebody who is really looking into my doctrine. Sometimes you get guys who it's like they just are self-appointed people looking for heresies. But I mean, just, just, just to be clear, I was recently looking through a, a list of old heresies, and I was like, oh, I just did, I just said that one in a sermon recently. <laughs> like, I didn't even know. Like, trying to make a point about the Trinity, I said something, I went too far, trying to make the point. Right? So it's important to have people who check out one another's doctrines, and these guys could be, there are scribes later who turn out to be well-meaning. Because they, they love God. Right? Um, Paul persecuted and murdered people because he loved God so much. So you got to, okay, all right, you really love God, we get it. So we give them a little benefit of the doubt, because it is their job after all. But they take their job too seriously. They, they are, what they end up showing themselves is to be false teachers, and they show, them, they show in this story specifically who their dad actually is, and it's not the living God. The scribes are present, and, and, and they now think, right, given what Jesus has said, it's very similar. Jesus has forgiven this guy's sins. It's very similar to 2 Samuel twelve thirteen, where the prophet Nathan said to David, the Lord has pardoned your sins. So they're not like, okay, we're here because we heard this guy thinks he's the son of God. It's not even on that level yet. He thinks he's a prophet. And they're a little indignant now because Jesus is making himself out to be a prophet. They are sensing an affront to the majesty and authority of the living God. So amen, dudes. Ask away. Check it out. But, what is, but Jesus uh, is sensing uh, an affront to his own authority. Right? He is the king. Now, what, what I love here is that we who have been reading the story actually know a little bit more about who he is. And so where, where, who, you know, where does he get off forgiven sins? Where do you get off asking that question? Right? Didn't you, didn't you, you, you clearly were not there back in chapter one where heaven opens and the spirit descends on him. And that same spirit within him, right, allows Jesus to discern what they're saying. Because what, what is it that they say in their hearts? When Jesus, uh, yeah, so he forgives the sins and says, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now let's put this in context. In the garden, Satan said what? Did God really say? The demoniac, earlier in Mark, says what? What do you have to do with us, Jesus? And these guys' question is, now they're, they're not bold enough to stand up and ask it in public. They're just sitting there passively grumbling in their own hearts. And what's the question? Where does this guy get off doing this? Where does he get this authority? Who do these guys belong to? They're of the demoniac. They're of Satan. They're not bold, so much in love with the word of God, so protective of his authority, that they're going to stand up and say, hey, prove to me what you are saying. They're sitting there passively, like accusers, like Satan. Uh, this guy is committing blasphemy. That sentence leads to death. They're murderers. Who is their dad? And yet, again, here we are, guys who have got all... They graduated from Westminster Theological Seminary, went on to get a PhD from St. Andrews, from N.T. Wright himself, and these guys are sitting in the front row, and you should see their library. You should see how perfect their keeping of the law is. And their dad is Satan. And, and what I love, this is the swashbuckling Jesus right here. This is what I'm talking about. 
He knows what they're, what's going on in their hearts. He could easily just move on, couldn't he? He's wanted to avoid this trouble up till now. He's tried to put off having the scribes come because he knows once the scribes come, there's going to be actual conflict. So what does he do here? It's, it, it's cup check time. Is he a man of God? Is he the Messiah who's ready to fight? Right? He, he hasn't want word to get out because he's trying to put this off because he's tried to preach to as many people as possible. But now, there's the threat in the front row. And he makes a joke. Right? He's staring in the face of death. He knows in their hearts that what they think he is doing is blasphemy, which they could easily put him to death. He's staring down the power that has the authority over his life, and he makes a joke. Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? Now, how is that a joke? Well, the joke is on one level, it is actually easier to say your sins are forgiven because you can't prove it. <laughs> it's ridiculous, right? And if he doesn't really have any authority, he'd just be like, yeah, no, no, I, 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 I said it. Watch, right? In 30 years when we all die, we'll go to heaven and we'll see who was right, right? I'll see you in hell, right? That's a common phrase that they put in the mouths of stars in movies. Why? Because we'll see who's right between you and me. We'll see who has the last authority between you and me. He's not that kind of guy. He stares at death and he laughs at it. Just imagine this coy little curl of his little lip here. He's like, I'm staring at death and I'm going to giggle the whole way. So that you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth, paralytic, take up your mat and walk. Apparently it's easier to do both. Right? It's not easier to do one or the other. Because I'm the son of God, because the kingdom is, is here and I am the king, watch me work. It's easier to do both. Because the, the entire world was made in and through me. I am the word of God. In the beginning, he said, God said, and the world and everything was made. And who was it that was spoken? It was this man standing there in this house. And they're going to challenge his authority. Now, fathers, husbands, parents, bosses, is that how you handle your authority? He doesn't take it so seriously he's not willing to make a joke. right? He's not holding on to it. right? It's not this thing to be grasped, it says in Philippians. He's holding his authority like a real king. Like, <laughs> okay, you're going to challenge me? Let's challenge me. Get up and walk. He could as easily have their heads explode. When you really get down to it, you could just make them disappear into ash like Thanos does in an instant. But he's not that kind of king. What's easier for him? Both. Both. Now, there's a couple of interesting things I'm going to point out here before we go into the last turn for home. Right? Using a baseball reference, it's the World Series. I'm on second. I'm now just stepping off a little bit. He, he uses this phrase, son of man. And again, the, the, he is hilarious. Because there's all kinds of things he could call. If he's really going for a power play, there are all kinds of titles he could use that would clue these scribes in to exactly who Jesus is. But their tradition mocks them. Their tradition is foolhardy. You can line up 50 PhDs, and these guys are still idiots compared to the living God. Because the Son of Man in Daniel is the Messiah. 
but in their tradition, which is so thorough, so big, and so all-inclusive with every word of God from the Old Testament, they don't even include the Son of Man in their, on the list. They've got this huge list of things that if Jesus had said it, they would have taken the rubble from the broken-down roof and tried to stone him right there. But Jesus is playing with them. It's a cat-and-mouse game, and he is the cat all the way. The cat all the way. Look at me. Look at the little scribes. Let me, let me make them dance. What's funny and even a little bizarre in the language is when you say the phrase, the son of man, you could just be saying, I. Now, again, I am not a linguist. Okay? That is not my thing. And so I don't know, like, it's a huge phrase to say to simply say I. It's like when I see a friend, I say, oh, it's a brother from another mother. I could just say this is my friend, but I'm saying something longer to make a, a, a different point. He says the Son of Man, and nobody, first off, they don't make a connection that he's saying anything about the Messiah. And secondly, it could, it could be that he just said I. Later when he says it, they are starting to clue in. This, this phrase he uses about himself, this title he uses, is ambiguous in their day. It's a, it's, it's a safe thing to do simply because they don't know what they're talking about, right? They don't know the tradition as well as they ought to. Does that make sense? So he, he's just toying with them all the way. He's toying with them all the way. That's why he's using this phrase in verse 10. But he also says, so that you may know. And that's a phrase right out of the mouth of God from Exodus because he says it to, to Pharaoh like 13 times. <laughs> so that you may know that I am the Lord. Again, here it is again, the swashbuckling Jesus, the roguish Jesus. He is messing with them left and right, and they think they're so smart, and they think they're so holy, and they don't have a clue who he is. And so he says, take up your mat and go home. And the paralytic, healed now of all of his sins, his, three, his four friends all healed of their sins, leave. Everybody else is stunned. Everybody else says, God is amazing. Because they've totally missed who's there in their presence. All of this doesn't force them to turn to Jesus and be like, let's take him down to Jerusalem now and make him king, like later it does. Right now, they're, just, they're, they're totally befuddled. It's just as befuddling as the leper. How does the guy not have leprosy now? How, I mean, who, who is this guy here in Capernaum preaching these sermons? They do not get it. And now, what does this have to do with us? It's the question. I've said before, when you're reading these stories, we often get the the characters that we are completely wrong. And so I'm going to give you options. (laughs) I'm going to give you options. They're in the house of Jesus. Where are you sitting right now? They're listening to a sermon. What are you doing right now? And in the midst of these folks, there are two reactions to the sermon. Passionate pursuit and passive skepticism. Which one are you? Which one are you? Are you the kind of person who is so in love with Jesus, so passionate about Jesus, you're willing to make a public disturbance about it? You're willing to interrupt the service to holler out, Amen, preach it, brother. Right? We're not that kind of church. Are you passionate and are you pursuing 
Jesus Christ? Or are you sitting there right now, looking like the scribes, you got everything all to the nines, right? You haven't cursed in years. You, you followed the law. I'm not an adulterer. You have all this list of stuff you've never done. And yet in your heart you're saying, where does that guy up there get off telling me what's what? Now let me, let me I, don't, I, don't, I don't want you to be distracted. I'm not Jesus. I'm simply the microphone. I, I, or the, the, the speaker. I'm standing here, I'm telling you right now, I am not Jesus Christ, in case anyone was confused. I am here on his behalf. What this story demonstrates is how confused we are even about what preaching is. Because this is not a message, I love all of you, but this is going to be a big thing that I'm going to be talking about. This is not a, a paper I am presenting to you for peer review. This is not a message. This is not a speech. This is not a lecture. I am here, and, and I'm saying to you, thus saith the Lord, you are either passionately pursuing Jesus Christ, or you are a passive skeptic. Your heart is full of doubt. Did he say, did he say, spank my children? Did he say, submit to my husband? Did he say, read the Bible and pray every day? Did he really say those things? What do you have to do with me, Jesus? You have no business, Mike, as, as the representative of God in this church, to ask me how often I make love to my wife. I do. I do have that authority. Because I'm here on behalf of somebody else who wants to get down to heart issues. Heart issues. Not externals. The Lord Jesus Christ is here, and, and you are either passionately pursuing him, or you're just passively taking it all in. Right? I, I don't know how many times I, I've heard it from other preachers. Preachers can be, be preaching a sermon on child-rearing, and in the third row is a parent doing exactly the thing they're saying don't do. I have sat there and, like, I, I, I was just telling my wife, Anne-Marie, I used to sit here sometimes, listening to Dean, thinking about what my next sermon was going to be about. It's like, oh, he brought up a good point there. Let me take notes. Just passively taking it all in. This is why we go out in the world and we passively take culture in. We passively sit there and watch Netflix. We go on Facebook. We're, we've learned to be passive and to have hearts full of skepticism at church. And so we go out in the world and we, and we make all kinds of terrible decisions about what we watch, what we do. We're not passionately pursuing Jesus. We're not making a public disturbance. We're not even disturbing our own marriage. We've said peace, peace over all the things that we needed to. We live in harmony now, right? Doug Wilson just said it yesterday. Some people's houses are decluttered like a cat lady's, where you have all this mess everywhere, but you've just made this path that gets you to the bathroom, right? Some marriages are that cluttered. Some marriages are well-kept. Some households are well-kept. Some households are that cluttered. Your lives, your souls can be that cluttered. I've figured out how to just sort of maneuver around, how to sit there in church and just sort of take it all in, but it doesn't actually cause me to do anything. You can be convicted, and how often does the conviction make it out of the parking lot? How often does the conviction make it out of the parking lot? There are other options, though. Do you, is your marriage crippled? Is this nation crippled? Is your life crippled? Is your soul crippled? Is this church crippled? What are you going to do about it? Well, you know, we got some nice crutches. 
We got him in a wheelchair. We just kind of take him around. It's like weekend at Bernie's, where we got the dead guy we're pretending is alive. That's a horrible movie from the 80s. Don't watch it. But they got this dead guy they actually is pretending is alive. And they take him all over for the weekend, and every, they have a party at his house, and he's just this dead guy. Right? They're not ripping the... Right? This is how we treat our lives. This is how we treat our marriages. This is how we treat our kids. Four guys. That's a community there. Right? You're either the cripple or you have something that's crippled. And it takes a community. Right? How is that porn addiction going all by yourself? How is that adulterous relationship going all by yourself? How is that horrible marriage that's breaking down going all by yourselves? Do you need someone to pick you up and to carry you? Is there something you need that, that there is the crippled body that you need help lifting on to the, to the gurney so that we can wheel it down and rip, start ripping holes? Are you willing to make a public disturbance for your faith? Are you willing to stir things up at home, stir things up with your kids, stir things up at work? The possibility for characters in this story is, in, is numerous, quite numerous. And, and what is Jesus Christ interested in? Who does he empathize with? Who does he get in this story? The guys ripping holes in the ceiling. Guys making a stir out of their faith. Guys who are per- pursuing him with passion and with understanding and with faith. What do you need to read about? What do you need to learn about? What do you need counseling in? What do you need to confess? What is the burden, the crippled burden that you're carrying around? Do you need people to help you carry it? Are you sitting there passively, your heart full of skepticism, wondering what any of this has to do with your actual life? Ladies and gentlemen, the message for Jesus on that day is the message that is the same today. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Right? If you haven't even gotten yourself to say, I doubt, I, I believe, help my unbelief, right? that's a step beyond these skeptics who were sitting in the front row. Get up. Get working. Get, get up on the roof and start digging, people. Well, well no, Jesus, I don't want to disturb him. I don't want to disturb Mike. He's reading all the time. <laughs> right? I don't want to disturb Dad. He yells. We don't want to make a disturbance, but what is the passionate pursuit of Jesus Christ look like in your life? What do you need to repent of? What do you need to believe? Who do you need help from? Don't sit there and listen to this sermon and go back like a dog to your vomit to your week and just live life as normal. Passionately pursue the living God and you will find him standing there Right After you've dug the hole in the roof, he will be standing there with a smile on his face saying, it was about time. Come on down. I heal you. I forgive you. Let's go on mission. That's the Jesus that we serve. And what he wants is, are those kinds of followers. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your passionate pursuit of us. We thank you for this message this morning. We pray that it would be effectual, that your word would not come back to you empty, but that you would, in fact, cause a deep conviction, Father, in all of our hearts, and that you would um, comfort us as sufferers, that you would be near to us, that you would heal us. We know that you are merciful and loving and good. 
And you know how badly, Lord God, we need you. I pray, Lord, for all of us, that you would make us passionate, that you would fill our hearts with a desire for you, that we would draw near to you, that we would cry out to you, Lord God, and that you would um, fill our lips with cries of mercy. And amen.